Hey everyone, it's Danielle. We're so excited for you to listen to today's episode, and it's actually our last one for the season. We're going on a quick break for the rest of the summer, but we'll be back in your feed again in September with all new guests, so stay tuned. All right, now let's get into this episode with Emily Tish Sussman. I had this vision of how I was going right back to work, and now I had a two-year-old, three-year-old, and three-week-old with no support system around me. And without childcare, I had no brain. And I was going to a high-stakes election where I knew that I would be good at it, and I could not do it. And that was so frustrating. Like, it didn't just kind of kill my professional opportunities, it killed my sense of self. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than 9 to 5. All right, let's get into it. Today, our guest is Emily Tish Sussman. Emily is a podcast host, a women's empowerment and family policy advocate, and a political strategist. She spent over 15 years working in democratic politics, starting her political career on John Kerry's presidential campaign, and later becoming the vice president of campaigns for the Center for American Progress. Now she's the host of the She Pivots podcast, where she's interviewed everyone from Vice President Kamala Harris to Priyanka Chopra. And she also recently served as a senior advisor for Paid Leave US. Emily, welcome to 9 to 5-ish. Thank you. This is, besides She Pivots, of course, this is my favorite podcast. So I'm very (laughs) excited to be here. We are very excited to have you. So we like to start all shows with our lightning round where we ask you very difficult questions and we'll see how you do. Are you ready? Born ready for that. What is the first job you ever got paid for? I think it was probably, oh no, it wasn't the Kerry campaign. It was a camp counselor. I was a camp counselor at a sleepaway camp. I feel like you would be a very good counselor. I feel like I've really, I appreciate that. And I feel like I've really taken that into every piece of my life. I was the head counselor for 15 year old girls. You also organized a summer camp for our children last year that was billed to me as like, just, you know, it'll be really casual and I get there and it's like you had created scheduled (laughs) activities. Yes. You know, when we go, we go all in. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Especially if it's camp related. Yeah. Okay. My next question, you, for those who are, are listening, they can't see that you have purple hair. If you know you, you've had many different shades of the rainbow as your hair color. What has been your favorite color? This lavender, but in the summer. I like a lavender in the summer and a deep purple in the winter. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. It it changes with the seasons. It's seasonal. Flip side, is there a color you haven't done or a shade you have not done that you still want to? The purple changes basically every time I wash it, which as you know, is not very often. (laughs) So I do like it as sort of a lighter, like a gray purple, but it's hard to keep that. It just keeps getting deeper purple. When did you start changing your hair? Like, does your hair fit different personas? 
That's a great question. So the purple is relatively recent. The purple is only since I left working in Washington and politics. I think even when I lived in Washington, I was like a little wild for Washington. And now that I look back, I'm like, that is the most conservative version of me. I couldn't even survive in that look anymore. So the other thing to know about you is you are an unrealized actress, like performer. Like you have all the the skills to sing and dance and act and like do your thing. And you've been time in programs doing that. Is there a role if, if so, like casting director came to you tomorrow and was like, Emily, we are going to make the movie of your dreams. You will get to be the star of the musical. What is the musical that you would like to star in? Wow. That's probably the best question I've ever been asked. I mean, I feel like Rachel Bloom already did it in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And when I was so, you know, maybe just like the next version, like, you know, when they brought back her first boyfriend from the second season with a different actor, or when they yeah. came back as a different actor, like maybe if she rebooted it, I would just be like the other, You'd be the, other. Like the, new, okay. the new Rachel Bloom. I do feel like when I was younger, I used to get confused for Claire Danes, like the height of my so-called life. Oh, Oh, I could see that. And who wouldn't love to go back and just be in my so-called life and like live that angstiness out loud? Who is, you've interviewed a lot of people or met a lot of people over your career. Who's the person that's made you the most starstruck? The vice president. If you were going to run for an office, any office, what would your political slogan be? Ooh, I thought you were going to ask me what office. And I was like, my answer no. is city council. I'm so deep in on the city council. What would my political slogan be? I feel like it would have to be like some kind of like a real housewives tagline. Mm-hmm. You know, like, um, I'm trying to think what rhymes with purple. Like, you know, like you may just see purple, but really I'm bringing the purple. I feel like Urkel. <laughs> but I'm no Mrs. No, I don't have it. <laughs> don't confuse me with Stephen Urkel. That's it. We got it. Don't confuse me with Stephen Urkel. I think you got it there, Danielle. Yeah. <laughs> all right. We're going to get into your actual story and, and talk all about the big pivot. So as we already mentioned, you started with a background in politics, which, you know, even if you're not working with a conservative party, like is a more conservative career path. And isn't necessarily like where you go to be, you know, bursting with creativity. I'm curious because that is very much how you come off as like somebody who's like bursting with enthusiasm and creativity. What initially drew you to politics and like, how did you get started on that track? I mean, I wanted to make a difference. Like I I felt when I was in high school and college, like growing up, like I felt this really burning passion to make a difference, but I felt so small. I felt like I was just one person and I felt like I didn't have the skill set necessarily. Like I didn't think I was really that smart and I didn't think I was, it was for the smart people to make a difference, like to make a big change. I really didn't know what it would look like and how I would be able to contribute. And so I think I just spent a lot of years like very angsty, like really not sure how to do it. And then in my major in college, we lobbied for a day. Like we went to Albany and I was like, oh, this is so interesting. So when I graduated college, I went straight to work on John Kerry's presidential campaign and I moved down to Pennsylvania. It was the nearest swing state to me. And working on that campaign changed 
everything for me. Like it changed my perspective. It changed my confidence massively because all of these things that I didn't think were skill sets were actually hugely useful in the workplace. Like I had a lot of energy. I could drive really hard. I could motivate people around me. I could manage more than one thing in my head at the same time. Like all of those things were actually big assets that they had never helped me in school necessarily. So I didn't think I was that smart and I didn't think I that I would be good at it. And all of a sudden I was rated it. And then we lost that campaign, obviously. So there were not a lot of jobs after that. So I looked around and I thought, well, the thing that I've always wanted to do to make an impact is to work in law, like to be a lawyer. But I I really never thought I was smart enough to do it. Like that's for the smart people. And I looked around on the campaign and I was like, there's a couple people here who are lawyers. And I really feel like if they can do it, I can do it. But can I, can I interrupt you for a second? Because you've said this twice that you didn't feel like you were smart. Yeah. I'm so, knowing you for a long time, like you're very smart, you're very obviously smart. Why did you feel that way? I didn't do well in school. I didn't get that feedback that I was doing the things that smart people could do. I didn't feel like the interests that I had lined up with things that like, quote, smart people had interests in. I wanted to do theater. I wanted to be sort of like a natural organizer among peers. When I was young, that looked like being really social, which was supposed to be the opposite of being smart. So I didn't have that feedback loop of thinking that I was. And even when I tried to apply myself, I didn't do well, like academically or in a club or, you know, something like that. So I didn't think that I was smart. And it was only once I saw how some lawyers operated in the world that I was like, okay, I'm at least as smart as them. I can probably do that. So is that the first time you realized like, okay, like I'm smart? Yeah. I actually don't even think in the campaign I thought that I was smart. I thought I was good at work. And I was like, oh yeah, I am good at work. And then. I took the LSAT right away and I applied to law school right away. I did accept, I mean, now since we're down this path, I did exceptionally well on the LSAT. I went to law school right away and it was so hard for me because I had never really applied myself academically. A lot of crying in law school, like I kind of like reformed my life around studying But I did start to think about the options of what kind of impact I could make. Like even when I was in school, I thought, well, I'll probably go back onto campaigns because that's where I know that I really thrive. I know that I can thrive in like a crazy cutthroat environment on no sleep, moving around high stakes. Like that's very, it's a good environment for me. So I'd always thought about going back onto a campaign. And so after I graduated law school in 2008, I went straight to work on Barack Obama's presidential campaign and I moved back to Pennsylvania. I went to Pittsburgh. And at that point I worked in the voter protection portion of the team, like trying to combine the law and the campaigns and Spoiler alert, he did win. So there were jobs. And I moved to Washington from there. But I thought it was going to be like one year. I mean, right after the campaign, everybody just picked up their cars and drove straight to Washington and found a couch to crash on where they tried to sort out jobs. And I was like, no, no, no. I live in New York. I'm going back to New York. I don't live here. And it turns out I do live there. And then I stayed for over a decade. (laughs) There's so much in that. And I think actually one thing that you talked about is there is a pace that I definitely understand from being on the news side of it, where there's a skill set around being able to operate on tight deadlines, thriving in that environment. Once you got off of the kind of campaign trail and wound up in DC, how did you start to look at that skill set and that mindset with the kind of understanding in your head that like, that wasn't necessarily how you equated it with intellect in a sense, Well, I think I was building the confidence as I came off the Obama campaign and was working in my first job in Washington. 
I think that my confidence in my intellect, I think, was still qualified. I was like, okay, well, I was good at that last job on the Obama campaign, but that's because it's a really high stakes, high paced environment. Like that's where I thrive. And then I went into this nonprofit. I went to work for a small nonprofit called the Service Members Legal Defense Network, where we were the attorneys for members of the military who were being investigated and discharged under the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy. That policy is now gone. But at the time, if you were gay and you were in the military, you didn't actually get counsel because it was an administrative discharge. So we were the lawyers. I went in on the policy side of the organization, which meant that we were trying to repeal the law of Don't Ask, Don't Tell and get a better set of laws for people to be able to serve. And it wasn't the fastest moving pace. Like it was slow. It was a slow burn. And that was not the pace that I knew how to operate. And also it wasn't what made me feel smart. Like it wasn't what made me feel comfortable. So I went into that job so aggressively, like kind of out of sync with the way that everybody else was doing it. Because I was like, the only way that I know how to prove that I'm good at this is to absolutely throw myself into it. I remember my first or second week, there was one other policy person there. And he said to me, he's like, you know, it's it, like, it's seven, you can go home. And I was like, who goes home at seven? <laughs> what I learned is that if you're working on an issue, like the way it kind of, kind of works in policy is that it's slow, slow, slow. And then it's happening all at once. Like it happens really fast. And once that started to happen, I was extremely well prepared for it and put me in a leadership role, even within the organization and the movement at large, because I was better prepared with that skill set than anybody else who was working on it. You really start to make a name for yourself in D.C. with advocacy work, with work um, around repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell. You're showing up on a lot of cable news shows and conferences and articles. And then you decide to start a family, which is super exciting for you personally. And knowing you don't do anything half-assed, so you did three kids in a very short period of time. <laughs> and then also, I should say, like you had your third kid literally like in the earliest days of COVID, like two weeks before COVID started. And so you then wrote this article that, or you said, and it came out in an article that, um, and I want to make sure I quote it right, that you wrote that your children killed your career. And I remember when I saw that, I was like, oh my gosh, like, why would you say that? And there were a lot of other people that were like debating this and talking about it. And it got a lot of buzz. Now understanding what you meant and understanding how that pivot ultimately led to now where you are today. But what did you mean by that when you said your children killed your career? Well, exactly that. They truly did kill my career. The way that I was successful in advocacy and in Washington was by being all in. The news cycle moves very quickly. Policy moves very quickly. I ended up taking that experience and then a couple of jobs afterwards. And I pitched myself to the largest democratic think tank, the Center for American Progress. And I said, I can help you in a way that you don't know that you need help, which by the way is how I've gotten basically every job I've ever had is that I've looked and said, I can help you in a way that you don't know that you need help. So this applies to every field. And then they had to compare everything else against what I was already proposing to them. And I said, I can design and execute campaigns for you. You don't know that you need this, but you have all these smart people coming up with ideas. They don't know how to implement it. I can do that for you. And I ended up rising up within the organization. So the Obama White House was outsourcing their campaigns to me because they didn't have enough staff to do it. And it was a dream. Look, look, I would have liked to have done it within the Obama White House too, but that didn't work out. But that actually is relevant because it's something I always wanted. I was like, when I, during the Obama administration, if you were in Washington and you worked in policy, you knew that I was the person who was designing these high-level campaigns. Once the Obama administration left, 
It's not so much there were new players because the Trump administration didn't actually hire that many people. So Washington didn't change that much, but the people in power did. And all of a sudden I thought, well, how am I going to stay relevant? The two fields that I'm working at the intersection of media and politics are all about the last thing that you did. What are you, how are you relevant? How are you still in the game? And I came back from having my first kid in the middle of the 2016 Trump-Clinton election. And I was petrified of not being able to stay relevant because I was pregnant and had my kid in the middle of the campaign. I couldn't work on the campaign. I'd never seen a pregnant person work on a campaign before. So I couldn't work on the campaign. If you don't work on the campaign, you're probably not going to go into the White House. All of a sudden, this pathway that I thought was guaranteed, you know, pre-kids was closed to me. And by the way, I didn't necessarily make the choice to have kids. I went off birth control as soon as I got married and got pregnant immediately. And I sobbed. I sobbed when I found out I was pregnant. I was like, I am at the height of my career. I don't necessarily want kids. I don't know how to think about this. I do not know how to work it in. And my husband thought there was something wrong with me. And there might be, but I don't think that's it. I think it's actually kind of a normal feeling. (laughs) Um, You know, I hadn't made this choice. I thought so much about how to position myself professionally. And I had been having success. And so I was like, I cannot be derailed by this thing I don't know how to think about. Like that, like I am different. My attention span is different. My energy level is different. I am physically different. And then I have to go home and take care of this baby that I don't really feel a connection to. I mostly felt resentment. And so that didn't feel great. So I felt like if I was willing to take a step back in any way in my job, it was because I was supposed to be like, you know, like so in love with my baby and like wanting to spend time with them. And I did not actually. So I couldn't reconcile those feelings in my head. Like everything that I saw in the debate around balancing motherhood and and working was about like how to, you you feel tugged in two directions. And like, I actually did not. I felt tugged in one direction towards work. And then I actually also had this responsibility of taking care of a baby and then was immediately pregnant again when he was eight months old. Like it wasn't that there was this like internal debate within me. It was just like, how am I going to do this? I was like, so how, I, I don't actually know how I can keep doing this. And then I thought I had it down. I thought I had it figured out. I got pregnant with the third kid and thought like, okay, I'm good. We're going into the 2020 presidential. This time I've got it. Like now I know how to do it. And then three weeks after she was born, we went into a lockdown. And it wasn't even so much that I had kids and including a newborn. It was that my childcare evaporated. Yeah. I had this vision of how I was going right back to work. And now I had a two-year-old, three-year-old, and three-week-old with no support system around me. And without childcare, I had no brain. And it was so unbelievably frustrating that my sense of accomplishment, my sense of self, anything positive that I had attributed to myself was through my professional vision of myself. And I was going to a high-stakes election where I knew that I would be good at it, and I could not do it because I had no childcare. And the world was falling apart. And that was so frustrating. Like it didn't just kind of kill my professional opportunities. It killed my sense of self. Like it was so dark that I didn't know how I had value and who I was without it. And that's where that article came from. My kids killed my career. I thought, I am feeling this so deeply. Is it going to be liberating to say it out loud? Was it? Yeah, it really was. Because I no longer felt like I had to be hiding behind oh, I'm still in the game. I'm still in the game. I was like, you know what? I'm out of the game. And I'm hoping that something different and better will come out of this, but I don't know that it will. I just know that that version of myself doesn't exist anymore. How did you start to find a new version of yourself? Because in this, you're not alone, right? So many people, but especially women, especially moms, were going through that exact feeling. 
of just being like, I thought this was going to be my time. And then a pandemic hits, which is terrifying. And then there's no childcare. And then it's all following on us. So how did you start to reframe that and like step out of it? Well, ironically, I found it through work because it's kind of the only way I know how to do it. But I turned work into having these conversations. So that's where the idea of She Pivots came as a podcast, as a concept, as conversations that I wanted to have, because I was feeling like I didn't know how to view myself and my sense of self. And there weren't narratives that I was identifying with. Like the pervasive narratives were balancing it or figuring out how to work through it or finding yourself in motherhood. And none of that was really resonating with what I wanted to feel. And what I what I did feel and what I wanted to be like moving towards, like I wanted to be moving towards a different version of myself where I can build upon all these things that I've done. I had done podcasts before. I had a political podcast. And so that felt like a format I knew how to follow and I knew how to build a small media company around that. But, you know, I only know how to do things in a really intense way and at a really intense scale. So at one point, I didn't even have access to my podcast feed. I was doing it on Instagram Live. And I said to myself, well, if I'm not getting an interview with Biden's campaign manager, I'm failing at this. And you better believe I hustled and harassed every single person I knew. And the first interview she gave in the White House was on my Instagram Live. Because I was like, I will have her. Like, I am, I, this has become the point of validation for me that, like, I am so lost. She is the person I want to have this conversation with. <laughs> and if I do it in a podcast, it turns out that people will say yes to you, like people that would have never just like talked to you on the phone because she's the one I wanted advice from. And I was like, well, let's open this up. And she said yes to me. <laughs> <laughs> I think, like, there's a real, um, like, bravery and freedom in what. And you saying all the things that you just said of being like, I did not connect with my child right away. I know that having a family changed how my career was going to go and not having childcare for a period of time changed how I was able to live out my dream career. We're obviously like in a moment where on both of our individual platforms, we and many others are talking about the childcare crisis in the country, the lack of paid family leave in this country. And how women are just really not set up for success as we continue all to take on more and more power and become more and more important to the economy. There are systems in place that just really screw us. And not talking about it is part of the problem. And so what is your advice for those that are listening that are like, yeah, children killed my career too? The biggest thing, I've gone through this process, and by the way, I'm continuously going through this process that has really helped me which is figuring out, really zeroing in on what are the things that are important to me? What do I want to keep and what can I get rid of? So the thing that I want to keep is being impactful. And by the way, this is my version of it. Everybody's version is different. I want to feel like I'm having an impact. Another thing I want to keep is that I want to feel like I have the flexibility in my schedule to drop my kids off and pick them up at school. Those are things that are important to me. What can I get rid of? Well, the thing might not be a podcast or the thing might not be interviewing only women or the thing might not be working in politics. Constantly reevaluating that process for me of what is actually the core of what I want and what are the things that I think that I'm attached to right now, but actually I don't need them and I can get to my goal in a different way. That's been the biggest thing that's actually helped me to get to this place and I think is 
most resonating when I talk to women as they're trying to rethink how they put the puzzle pieces together. And a piece of that is financial too, right? A piece of that is trying to figure out how much childcare do you have? How much childcare can you afford? What is your family actually relying on you for? A lot of times it's not, like I feel like we went through this this, you know, like 2010s version of like, oh, that founder, and by the way, they're all male and young, burned it all down and started with nothing and like put everything on the line and started over. Well, that's not realistic for most people. So, you know, is it starting something as a side hustle? Is it taking a client on pro bono just to be able to build up your portfolio? Like figuring out how you build in a way that makes sense to you. Like, Are your kids so young that they're not sleeping through the night and you have no extra bandwidth? And so, because your brain is fried. Well, that's realistic too. Like, don't put a pressure on yourself to say, well, by the end of six months, I'm going to have a thriving Etsy store if my kid doesn't sleep through the night. No, your job right now is survival. You will get through it. And then at the end of six months, you will figure out where your passion lies and like what you actually think can monetize for you. And if that's what you want it to be. Like going through that constant reevaluation, I think is is how I'm going through it right now. And I think a lot of women are, even if they're not naming it. Do you think, you know, your show is called She Pivots. You do it in partnership with Marie Claire. You've interviewed amazing women as part of it who have all had some sort of career pivot. Do you think that that has been like the thematic key that you've noticed in, in interviewing them, that they also are kind of reevaluating those priorities in the same way? Well, I think everybody does it. I think the big through line that I'm seeing through the conversations is that something bad happened. Like we don't change unless we're forced to change. Like we just don't. If it's kind of going okay, you kind of stick with it. And something kind of bad happened to all of these women, whether it was huge, whether it was small, maybe there was personal, professional, but something forced them to change their situation or change their perspective. Like sometimes it's a pivot in place. Like I interviewed Lala Kent from Vanderpump Rules and her big pivot was her sobriety that she actually kind of pivoted in place. Like now she looks at everything differently. She approaches everything differently. And therefore she was able to to really monetize the position that she was in where she hadn't been because it had been kind of a mess before. I want to take that theme up. There's like a, a theme of trauma or something bad happening, a challenge, and apply it to kind of where we are now. So you've talked a lot about the pandemic being this forcing function and recognizing how hard it is to do anything without childcare. Carly and I and the Skim have kicked off a Show Us Your Child Care campaign. We all went through this trauma of having to do so much with without childcare or having it be absurdly expensive, having it just not work for for anyone, including the childcare givers themselves. And yet we're not seeing change from it. I don't think it's been something that the left has done, the right has done. Like we still don't have it. Put on your like policy advocacy hat here. How do we get nice things? That's always my phrase, which is just like, why can't we have these like I say it nice things as a joke, but they're they're just fundamental essentials to me. It's like utilities to be able to make things function. How do we get them? Well, in your question is exactly the answer. It has to start being viewed as an essential and not as a nice thing and not as a personal problem. The economy can't function if we don't have childcare. Like if women can't meaningfully be in the workforce, 
then we don't have a fully functioning economy. We are leaving so much productivity, money, growth on the table, not just growth, but status even. Like we're just leaving so much on the table. And that's from an economic perspective. Like that's an argument I would make in front of a policymaker and try to get them on board. If we're talking from a personal level, just think about how much women can bring to the table once they have the opportunity to feel secure that their children are safe and being cared for. And then you can really think freely. Then you can really bring everything in, into the the creativity, the work that you want to be doing. Like there's so much that we can't unlock in our minds if we, if our minds are always multitasking, thinking about whether our kids are safe and happy, not even happy at this point, like just safe and cared for. You'd mentioned, but I did work last year on the Build Back Better bill on the specific piece of trying to get a federal paid leave program in. First of all, there was no greater champion than Nancy Pelosi. It had already been cut out of the deal in the bill in the House, and Pelosi went in and she said, we're putting it back in. She put it back in. And then I will say specifically on the Senate side, it it actually really did ultimately end up coming down to one senator. It came down to Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia truly not understanding that paid leave was not a nice to have, but that it is a utility. And to have worked on that campaign was incredibly frustrating because he and his office actually prevented us from bringing storytellers in, people who needed paid leave as an actual necessity. There was a great night when they were working on the Build Back Better bill on the floor of the Senate where you could watch on C-SPAN Senator Gillibrand literally and Patty Murray, Senator Patty Murray literally chasing Manchin around on the floor. And I asked her about it. I said, you know, what did you say to him? Like, I watched you chase him. What did you say to him? And she's like, well, I tried to give him examples of how like personal examples, like to hear one person at a time, because that's often what captures not just the imagination of regular people, but lawmakers as well, because they are actually people at their core sometimes. You know, the personal stories to help them understand how it's something that we actually need and not just something that is nice to have. The fact that we have women who have lived it in positions of power as the Speaker of the House, as a tenured senator who holds status with her peers on the floor, That is how we're going to have policy change. The other piece of that is that culture has to move first. Culture has to move first before lawmaking. A lot of us who worked in the Obama administration lived through when we moved laws, particularly the Affordable Care Act, faster than the culture had moved to accept it. And there's actually many of us, I would put myself in this category, that worked in the Obama administration that are now thinking about culture change as opposed to legislative change first because we didn't do the work to move the culture. And that's what you guys are doing by being a company, telling stories and bringing your peers alongside with you. So thank you for moving culture on this. So how's it going to change? You guys are going to change it. I feel like that is uh, your campaign slogan. It's not about us. It's like the people, you guys are going to change it. I think that's a good way to end. Purple people change things. Now we found it. We like to end uh, every show with two questions. So First is a listener question from somebody named Casey who wants to know, there has not been a lot of pregnant women in my workplace and I'm looking to start a family. How should I start these conversations with my boss or my workplace about what this means for me and my career? I love that question so much because I love that she's thinking proactively and about bringing her boss and workplace into the conversation. Because ultimately you want the same thing. Like it's actually not a contentious, it's not like a you versus your workplace. Like you both ultimately want you to be successful. So starting that conversation by saying, what things do you really need out of me? 
How do we make it work? And what things do we feel like we should move or think about differently? Or maybe it's work from home some days. I did not do any of those things. I hid my pregnancy because I was so uncomfortable and so embarrassed. And I was very sick during my, all three of my pregnancies. And so I would put a meeting on my desk every day at 3 p.m. because that is when I fell apart. And I would lie under my desk on top of my shoes, like on top of my high heels and close the door. And had I gone to my boss to say, look, maybe just don't schedule meetings for me at this time and I'm going to come back and be able to get back online, I think we all would have been happier. Certainly me. But I think that she's asking exactly right, the right question and bringing the right players in. Let's say, let's think about how we can work through this together. And if you're concerned about them then letting you go, it's illegal. So you can ask it. Last question. Who is someone else we should have on this show? And we should also, before you answer, say shout out to Isa Watson, who said we should have you on the show. So we, we love when the recommendation leads to a booking. I would say one of my favorite mom businesswomen, also one of my best friends, Joey Wolfer, who is the, I don't know if she's a CMO, chief brand officer of Wolfer Wine and Wolfer Estate, is just a brilliant businesswoman and very dedicated mom. And I look to her among my idols. So you should interview Joey. That's a great wreck. All right. Um, well, Emily, thank you so much for sharing your story so candidly. And it's these types of conversations that actually help move the ball forward. So we are very grateful and congratulations on uh, a wonderful podcast and a great pivot. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for giving me the platform to have the conversation, ladies. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. And if you want to keep up with us in between episodes, follow us on Instagram at Carly and Danielle. It's a really good account, I promise. <laughs>